News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Good weather is coming, and that means it's time to get out in the garden. I, for one, am very excited. But before we all do that, we need to learn about those secret invaders lurking in our yards. And that's what the Invasive Species Council of BC would like to help you do this month. Gail Wallen is the executive director and joins us now. Good morning, Gail. Good morning. Is this the prime time of year for invasive species in our yards? Well, this is a prime time to be aware of it because many of us are getting out to start planting our garden. So when we're out there planting or weeding or getting it prepped, we want to make sure that we're not buying, trading or putting in new invasive species. And that's often done. So, yes, this is the time to be aware. What do you mean it's often done? Like, are we actually planting invasive species? Actually, invasive species, which means they're not native to BC or our backyards, and they're actually very aggressive. They take over the ecosystem. So it's a very narrow group of uh, plants. But these invasive species, over 60% of them, we've actually intentionally planted. And that's because they're exotic, they're you know aggressive, they take over your garden, you know, little work needed, all those you know, aggressive, uh, rapidly spreading ground cover, all those cold words means, ah, it might be invasive. So yes, we do buy them, but we think people today are much more aware. And so we encourage you to be aware, know what you're buying, know what you're trading or planting, and make sure they're not invasive plants. Okay, let's start with the list that you've got here. You've got one called Myrtle Spurge, which is a great name, by the way. It Mm -hmm. seems to me that a number of these ones on your list are, they've kind of escaped from people's gardens. Well, like I said, over 60% are planted, and Myrtle Spurge is a perfect one. So it's a really exotic-looking plant that looks pretty neat, but it's actually very toxic to us, and so we don't want it. So you think you buy this you get from your neighbor this exotic looking plant you put it in your garden and then yes it escapes the garden fence the phrase we often use and so no you don't want to do that yes it looks exotic giant hogweed was one that was you know a five meter tall three meter tall plant um, because it looked exotic and then it caused many people to go to the hospital with second degree burns so that and myrtle spurge can end up with putting people in the hospital Let's not buy or plant these anymore. And you know what? Just looking at the picture of the Myrtle Spurge, I have seen that everywhere. Like that thing grows all the time. Well, an invasive species is something that grows rapidly, gets established, um, takes little care. So you're right. And that makes it really easy to escape your garden, go elsewhere and causes lots of problems. So, you know, we encourage people to be, we call it plant wise. Uh, you can uh, find out the information on PlantWise program and we'll give you alternatives of what to grow instead of Myrtle Spurge or what to grow instead of English Ivy, what to grow instead of uh, English Holly. Those are all examples of invasive species that are seem really common, but we don't want them to be spreading across our province. And let's talk about the way you mentioned it there. This is the big one too, though. Japanese knotweed. Oh, Japanese knotweed is... You know, it, it, this is a plant that it sort of looks like bamboo, um, a false bamboo, some people will call it. But this plant, actually, if you have it on your property, you have a high risk because this plant can literally grow through the foundation of your house. I've seen it growing through uh, our highways. I've seen it growing uh, in, br- in bridge foundations. And this is aggressive, so you need to get rid of it. 
and it is difficult to get rid of because it is so um, aggressive. Um, you have to get every piece of its root out, um, which is difficult to do. So it's ex- excavating. Um, often you need to use a, um, a herbicide on it because it is so aggressive and you want to protect your house. So um, in, if you were in England, you would uh, not be able to get a mortgage with it. So really? Not, yeah, we're not that far. We don't have that rule in, B, in BC yet. But at the same time, you do when you buy your house or you're, you're looking at buying a place, we're asking you, this is the one of the things you want to look at because this will cost you to get rid of it and you do need to get rid of it. Okay, so people should definitely Google that one and take a look at what it looks like. And you're right about the bamboo kind of shoots. Like, So right now at this time of year, is that what it looks like? It looks like those shoots coming out of the ground? It, you know, di- different parts of the province will have, be at different stages just because the weather is, you know, yes, we're into spring, but different parts. So it, that's its early phases, but it grows very rapidly. It's very distinct. It's very impressive. Um, and did I mention it was planted intentionally and now we're spending thousands of millions to get rid of this um, species from our municipalities, our highways, et cetera. So, okay, that so, is a big so, one. That is a huge one. It's really, it's really a good example about what trouble you can cause to your your lands, your community, if you have this in there. And, and municipalities and the province and individuals are working hard to get rid of this in different areas, which is a great thing. Okay, and what about giant hogweed? Giant hogweed is actually, you know, again a garden plant brought in. Is it go, grows so big and impressive? Yes, all those things, but it's. It actually will, when it's escaped your garden, it's got a great big seed head on it. It sort of looks like an umbrella. It sort of belongs to the carrot family. Um, it, it will escape your garden fence. It, we've toured places where it actually is the only species growing there, and it crowds out because it's so big. It'll crowd out um, lower-growing plants. Um, but again, here is an exotic-looking plant, but it actually has a in its... I'll call it sap in its stalk. It actually um, causes blisters, etc. And so we always get calls every year about my daughter, my child has ended up in the hospital because of second degree burns. And again, this had we paid attention back when we brought it into BC, we would have made sure that we stopped planting this. And now today, many municipalities on the lower mainland have actually removed all the giant hogweed and they're on the alert for new reports. And we encourage people to report in. You know, you go to, we have a, um, an app, you can go to, it's on iNaturalist, there's a project called iSpy Identify. Go on there and report anything that you want to see, but it'll actually help you learn it. And if you see something that looks exotic, big, sort of big white uh, um, umbrella style flowers, take a look and then, but do not, just go up to it and and cut it down. You need to be wearing totally covered with your clothes and your face so you don't get that sap, wow. I'll call it sap on your skin. That sounds mm-hmm. terrible. Okay, these are some serious stuff here. And I do encourage people to go online and look these up so you have a good idea of what they do look like. Uh, what about Scotch broom here, Gail? Because I looked this one up and I thought, well, it actually it looks kind of pretty. <laughs> Never you people plant them because they That's do look right. pretty yeah. exotic. 
So Scotch broom is actually uh, was brought over to bring a little touch of the uh, Scottish countryside. And now if you tour, I was just talking to people on Vancouver Island. You cannot be on Vancouver Island basically and not see Scotch broom. It's just coming into bloom. It's a beautiful yellow color. It just lines the highways. It lines, covers our our lands. I'm actually doing a tour today to take a look at how it prohibits, makes it really difficult to replant, get forced replanted. So again, here's a plant that somebody brought in and now it has actually covered all, you know, most of Vancouver Island. And there are groups across BC and Vancouver Island removing this. So Broombusters is a really good volunteer group. People are trying to remove this so you can actually get back some native species and get back that natural diversity we really love. And I understand that it's also a concern if it's in an area where wildfires might be a problem. Yes, there's a there's a couple of plants, and this is one of them, um, scotch broom or cheatgrass here in southern um, BC. These two species are actually very flammable. And right now, as we will watch the weather and communities are concerned about fire, they want to reduce risk. So many communities are fire smarting and they're removing um, flammable materials around homes or buildings and trying to reduce the risk of fire. Well, Scotch broom is one of those. It's actually got an oil. It makes it very flammable. So if it's in and around your properties, you need to remove it. Now, this takes some work to remove it. You can physically remove it. Um, cut it down. You can definitely remove its seed head so it doesn't reproduce more plants, but it's actually got seeds in the soil. So you're going to need to keep at it for multiple years to be able to successfully reduce your um, scotch broom population. Oh, wow. Okay. This is going to be hard work. Gail, what's your website so people can go online and see all this? So bcinvasives.ca is where you want to go and look up your plant-wise program. Um, Take a look at what are some of the options for Grow Me Instead which is instead of planting English ivy, here's some alternatives. And, you know, when next time you go into a garden store, go in and check to see, um, is this plant invasive? Ask them. We're actually working with retailers such as GardenWorks who will m- make sure that they provide information. Yet this is not invasive. This is uh, one that you can buy instead of whatever plant you've asked for. If you're asking for English ivy, they'll give you some alternatives that are meet the same needs that you have for your garden, but protect our environment by not being invasive. Great advice. Thank you so much, Gail. Have a great day. Be plant wise. This is Mornings with Simi. I'll brace yourselves. That's pretty much the message with this oncoming heat wave that is headed our way. Looks like Saturday, Sunday right now going to be very hot. Slightly cools down later in the week, but there really is no rain in sight. And on top of that, we've got this wildfire problem in Alberta and in northern BC. And combined with the heat wave, like could we be looking at some serious air quality problems in Metro Vancouver soon? And how do you how do you get ready for something like that? Well, let's find out. This is something we've had to deal with in the last few years. Kyle Howe is with us now, a Metro Vancouver air quality analyst. Kyle, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Are you a little worried about the movement of this wildfire smoke? Well, right now we are monitoring the situation very closely with the activity in Alberta and uh, northern BC. But uh, the current models that we're looking at don't indicate uh, you know, a significant impact from smoke in the lower mainland, uh, at least for the next couple of days. Uh, that being said, our team is certainly going to be keeping a close eye on this. Right, because it just seems like when it gets warm, uh, that's when we start to have some problems, isn't it? 
Yeah, and we've noticed, you know, with our changing climate that we're starting to see this wildfire season uh, starting sooner and lasting longer. Uh, if you remember last year, the season extended well into October. So we think this is really a good time for people to start preparing now for the upcoming wildfire season. How do we do that? So there's a number of things that people can do. Um, the best way to protect yourself during wildfire smoke events is to just reduce your exposure to the smoke. So that can be doing things like purchasing an indoor uh, air filtration system, a portable one that has a HEPA filter, or trying to spend time in public buildings that have air conditioning and air filtration. Uh, and, you know, there's a number of resources that people can go to, including the BC Centers for Disease Control um, they have a number of fact sheets, including one on how to build your own, uh, you know, homemade box fan filter uh, if you're not able to go out and purchase one of these portable air, air filtration units. Now, is this where essentially we are at at this point? Like, is this something, Kyle, that you think everybody should be paying attention to? We think that everyone should be taking this very seriously. And I think this indicates as well our changing climate and some of what our region is going to have to face uh, in the next you know, a couple of years to decades, um, we expect, based on the climate uh, forecasting that we have, that these sorts of events will become more frequent and more severe over time. So it's really important that people start planning for this every year. Every year, because that is what we've seen. Like, we saw some pretty bad kind of air quality advisories in the last few years. What kind of an impact does that have on people when we get that happening? That's right. Six of the last eight summers actually had pretty significant wildfire smoke impact. And when we had these sorts of events occurring, um, most of the time with the wildfire smoke, we're really talking about those uh, people that uh, are already at risk. So people with heart or lung conditions, uh, pregnant folks, uh, you know, infants, the elderly, those are the people that um, need to take the most precautions. Uh, but, you know, we also have problems sometimes with ground level ozone, which is something that can impact everyone. So this is really something that everyone in the region should be paying attention to and should be taking seriously um, as we expect this to potentially continue, uh, you know, in future years. So what are some of the higher risk areas? Is, is the Fraser Valley kind of uh, more at risk than, say, parts of Metro Vancouver? What, what areas really need to worry? Within our region, you know, Metro Vancouver as an organization uh, issues air quality advisories for Metro Vancouver and parts of the Fraser Valley Regional District. Um, when we do issue those advisories, it's really meant for, for anyone living in those areas. I wouldn't say that there's necessarily an area that's more at risk or less at risk for these sorts of events. Um, but we just want people to, you know, be mindful of, of where these advisories are coming from and, and know that, um, you know, they can check in with, with our stuff at um, airmap.ca to find the most current information about, you know, whether an advisory is in place. Right. How do you do it? How does Metro Vancouver monitor air quality? So we have a, a system of, uh, you know, over 30 air quality monitors that are throughout the region. And these monitors are, you know, very high quality, uh, extensive uh, monitoring capabilities. And this data is all uh, transmitted back to our offices where our team is you know, constantly looking at this information. Um, this data can actually be viewed in real time by the public at airmap.ca. Um, and it's also really important that people understand kind of the source of the data. Uh, so, you know, our network is high quality and it's following federal standards for monitoring. Um, and it's a, it's a really high quality um, network that we have. So we encourage people to use our website as their first stop for air quality information in our region. Right. So we should be checking. So when we get the heat kind of building like we're going to see over the next four or five days, leaving wildfire smoke out of it, are there other air quality concerns that come into play? 
So I referenced earlier ground-level ozone is something that can um, sometimes be an issue. Uh, so that is, is something else that we watch. Uh, ground-level ozone is, is something that occurs you know, when uh, various chemicals in the atmosphere mix together in the presence of sun, sunlight. So we often see you know, in hot conditions that it can uh, become elevated. So that's another uh, pollutant that we monitor and issue air quality advisories for. In that case, uh, ground-level ozone advisories are ones that everyone should be taking seriously as that can have an impact on even um, people in the healthy uh, population. So uh, we think that with this weekend, while it will be hot, um, we're hopeful that we don't see any uh, potential issues, but certainly we have a team of people that will be monitoring this uh, throughout the weekend and actually throughout the rest of the season. Okay, good to know. So then once again, where is the where should we be going for information? So you can find air, air quality information on our website at airmap.ca or just at metrovancouver.org. Um, and we actually this year will be enhancing our coverage slightly so that there will be hopefully more information provided to the public during times of air quality advisories. And I also encourage people to go to the BC CDC website to find information on both air filtration systems that they can be purchasing or uh, filtration systems that they potentially can fill themselves, as well as ways to protect yourself uh, with the season that's upcoming. All right. Good advice. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh boy, the Royal BC Museum has had its ups and downs in the last couple of years. It has been in the news and now it's back in the news again, but because of something that is reopening, a reason for you to go check out the Royal BC Museum. We thought, let's find out exactly what's going on here. Tourism Minister Lana Popham is with us to talk about this. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Shimmy, I was so happy to hear you're such a dog fan this morning. Well, now I think that's stretching things a little bit. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have dogs <laughs> in the family, but I was outvoted, so I have dogs in the family. And, you know, you can't help once you have them. You kind of, you love them, right? Uh, absolutely. I've had yellow labs, uh, ah. three beautiful yellow labs in my life, but I love the dog show. It's so much Can't fun to get watch. enough of that. My two-year-old yeah. Red Fox Lab loves watching the it's um the it's wonderful. And Buddy Holly, how could you not it's love adorable. Buddy Holly? It's adorable. <laughs> we could probably talk about dogs all day, no, and people would could. love it. That's true. But let's talk about the Royal BC Museum because the Old Town exhibit is reopening now. Tell me what went into this because I know there was a big uproar when this closed. So why reopen it? Well, so. Uh, yeah, there's been some ups and downs with the museum, but I feel like we're on a big upswing now. And uh, I'm from the South Island, and the Royal BC Museum, of course, every, you know, British Columbians love it, but the South Island population really, really loves it. And uh, the Old Town is, has been one of the go-to things to do uh, for people with young kids, for people with, who are bringing visitors into town. You name it, that's the place to go. And so when the direction of the museum was being decided, unfortunately, it came to a, a place where um, things were closing down, including, of course, we had the complications with COVID that were, were also on ongoing. Um, but I became minister in December, and I have received hundreds and hundreds. It might even be, we might even be getting close to a thousand emails about reopening Old Town. People really wanted to see it. So uh, I worked with uh, the chair of the museum board, who worked with the CEO of the museum, <clears throat> and I was putting a, a lens on it uh, of tourism, because there were, we, tourism season, uh, 
this was going to be one of our big comeback seasons this summer in Victoria, and I wanted to know if the museum could be open at the beginning of tourism season, and I really wanted to see that happen in June. I kind of threw it out there, and the museum came back with their working plan and said, we've got a lot of exhibits that are up and coming, like we've got the T-Rex exhibit that's being uh, opened on June 16th. We think we can get it done this summer, and then they put a date on it of July 29th, and I said, that's amazing, let's do it. So that's how it happened. Okay, so that it's been over a year that it has been closed, but I do remember the museum saying that they had closed it because they wanted to uh, rethink about BC's history, be more representative. So wh- what has changed, or has anything changed? Yeah, and so it's going to be a new experience for people, uh, but it's going to have a lot of the really most popular parts of, uh, of Old Town that are there. So there's lots of stuff that happens on the third floor, and uh, can, including these uh, exhibits that travel through, uh, like T-Rex. Um, but the Old Town exhibit has things that people really like. So uh, one of the most favorite things that people write in about is the train station. Um, have you been to the, Have you been to Old Town? Oh my gosh, it's been a long, long time since. But I've you seen probably that. remember the train yes, station. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So people love to bring their kids in there. So they wanted to know: Is the train station going to be open? Um, what about the theater? What about uh, There's a wonderful exhibit that was co-developed. By the, with the Chinese community. So there's Chinatown, there's a printing press, there's a ton of stuff in there that people, there's cobblestones, there's the sounds of the horses, there's the smell of the cinnamon coming out of the old-fashioned kitchen. So all of that's going to be there, but there are going to be things that are going to be different. So not every single storefront will be intact, but there's going to be new contextual panels throughout the gallery. So it's going to explain uh, the history in in a way that people may not have thought about it before. So it's going to include everybody's shared experience of that time. And uh, I think it's going to be much, much better as a a museum exhibit. Um, There's some things like the the movie theater will not be playing silent movies from Hollywood anymore. It'll actually be showing uh, footage from British Columbia, uh, old historical footage, which I think is a great improvement there. Um, there's, I, I don't know if you remember the Our Living Languages exhibit. That's an exhibit of, of Indigenous languages that is a traveling exhibit now. So that, that pops up in towns all across British Columbia. So that particular exhibit is on the road. And then um, we do have the First Peoples Gallery that is currently being used for consultation with Indigenous peoples uh, around their vision of of, uh, exploring the history of British Columbia. So that's not happening yet. But this is phase one. Uh, The things like the ship, the mine, that's going to happen in phase two. So, you know, and that'll happen, I believe, within the next year. So, uh, but there's going to be a lot that people Mm -hmm. want that's going to be available on the 29th of July. I have to ask, though, like, why couldn't we just have done this in the first place? Like, it was the shutting it down and, you know, no questions and all that kind of stuff that really got people's backs up about this. Yeah, well, you know what? There was a there was a decision that was made uh, that we were going to redevelop the museum and rebuild it on that uh, location. That, of course, uh, the public spoke loud and clear. They didn't want uh, to spend that kind of money on that development at that time, and so 
it was stopped in its tracks. Uh, things had started to be packed up for a move. Um, but while the opportunity happened, uh, that there was a pause, decided the museum really wanted to take a different approach with Old Town. So it did take some time, but we're getting there. But I have to say that uh, museums around the uh, globe are all at this crossroads on um, their kind of what they where. Do they belong? What story are they trying to tell? And what's their role um, in telling stories of the past? All museums are facing this challenging moment, and our museum is the same. And so we had a few extra complications uh, along the way, but I think we're on a really good road now. There's been a consultation that's been happening around the province for the last little while where people get to put in a lot of input and what they want to see. So, yes, it's unfortunate we had this pause, but I think we're we're in a better spot anyway. Okay, so, and people should be, I guess, encouraged to come and check this out, right? Because go and visit, yeah. Absolutely. There's great exhibits that are coming through that are not permanent exhibits. So like T-Rex, if you're a dinosaur fan, got to come and see it. Um, the opening of Old Town on the 29th of July will be a really big day. And I'm really hoping that people will embrace this and renew their memberships. People love to have the, the membership going for, for their annual pass. I'd love to see people kind of re-embrace it and become part of the museum community once again. It's going to be worth it. Okay, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your time on that. Okay, thanks a lot. Appreciate that. Tourism Minister Lana Popham, uh, she did step into that portfolio back in December. And one of the things she tackled is this whole Royal BC Museum situation. And so, as we now know, after some controversy, the beloved Old Town exhibit is reopening with some changes, though. But, right, like I said, why didn't we just do this a year ago? They could have avoided all the controversy. But it does sound like it will be something that a lot of people will want to check out that reopens July. July the 29th. This is Mornings with Simi. We've heard recently about a number of different municipalities that are, are thinking about passing municipal bylaws related to the use of drugs, essentially, in public spaces as a way to deal with the fact that a number of drugs, small amounts, have been decriminalized. But there is one community that is saying, you know what, we're going to take a wait-and-see approach with this. And we thought, let's talk more about that. Uh, Mike gets us with us now, the mayor of Merritt, to talk about that. Good morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So, t- first of all, how are things in Merritt? Good. Sunny and bright, and the water's coming down. We're still on level one, but we're being very cautious. Okay, good to know. Uh, I wanted to talk as well about this this bylaw situation. So, why have you decided that maybe you're going to wait and see what goes on here? Uh, a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is, is that we already have a lot of things in place. Uh, right now, you can't uh, drink or smoke in our parks, and re- we feel that the uh, drug use would cover that as well. Um, also, the fact that uh, there, when this came out, uh, there's not a lot of clear direction from the province on what's happening. You you get the uh, decrim where you're able to carry 2.5. You have the start on January 31st, but there's absolutely nothing after it. So it's really hard. Like, there's no milestones. There's no, how are we doing at six months? What are the numbers at a year? It's a three-year project. Uh, but there's no there's no body to it, so it's really hard to try and make bylaws when the governing body that is putting this out really has no clear direction on which way they're going. Now, saying that, I met we met with Carol, Dr. Carol Fenton last night, and we had a very good conversation of about an hour and a half, and we have been told that 
the body of that will be coming out in June. So that's where we'll be able to start looking at things a little bit closer. Okay, that's island, or sorry, interior health, right? That's inter- Well, this is interior health here, yeah, IHA, yeah. Okay, so now this is interesting. Um, Mayor Getz, how has this whole situation, including the overdose crisis that we have, how has that impacted Merritt? What have you seen? To be honest with you, since the decrim has come out, we haven't seen a whole lot of behavior where people are actually using out in the open. I don't. I didn't think we would see that. The only issues that we have with this that I think are concerning is the fact that the RCMP with this new decrim cannot uh, take a small portion of some seized drugs and find out what's in them to find out if uh, there's they're, they're safe for people. I mean, it, you've probably heard of a thing called xylazine which is coming mixed in the fentanyl, which is a horse tranquilizer. It's very deadly to the people who are using it. But if you can't test the drugs, how do you know what's in them? Uh, And the Narcan kits don't work when it's a fentanyl-xylosine mix because uh, xylosine is not an opioid. So we haven't seen an overabundance of change, pretty much the same usage that we saw at the beginning. But, um, you know, I'm concerned the fact that there's no way to tell what's in the drug supply, and that can affect people that are out there using drugs. Uh, they can take them in to be tested, but um, those sites are few and far between. What has the overdose crisis impact been like in Merritt? Well, it, it's it's the same as, as everywhere else. So we, we do have um, a, a large number of people that do pass away from it, unfortunately. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's a concern everywhere. I don't think our numbers are any worse than anyone else's. Um, and the whole idea of this whole decrim is to to make a change, and that's what I'm hoping is going to happen as we as we move on the the sit one of the questions that i said to dr carol fenton last night that i was concerned about is you're you've got a decriminalization situation going on and that's great but you have not got a safe drug supply so even though you have the ability to carry 2.5 these people are still dealing with their drug dealers and the drug dealers are making money so why if you're going to go decrim do you not have a drug safe uh, safe drug supply so it, it, a lot of the things don't walk hand in hand in here. And, I, and when I say we're going to take a wait and see attitude, it's the fact that there's no sense having uh, 25 communities trying to reinvent the same wheel. We might as well allow uh, other groups to go through and then copy exactly what they're doing, kind of like our four-day four day work week we have here. Uh, we're kind of the bellwether for that. And there's other communities now that are wanting our our information after six months to see if they want to do the same thing. So. Um, it's not that I don't take this seriously. I do. It's just that you've already got so many groups that are working on it that we might as well watch what their process is and then work towards the same situation. I think a lot of people, though, Mayor Getz, would still be surprised to hear that in a town like Merritt, you also have this overdose problem. We do. Uh, but what ends up happening in our community, a lot of the people that are overdosing in our community are actually not from here. They transition here as, as transients that come through our community and they, they pass away here with their drugs. So um, I don't think we're any different than any other community. And we, 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 will, we are taking this seriously, but we need to see some more direction from the government on what their processes are going to be over the next three years. And we're just not seeing that at this point. Okay, so you're in a wait-and-see mode on that. Now, you just said something interesting that I also want to ask you about, the piloting the four-day work week situation. I remember we talked to you about that way back. How is that going? You know, it's going very well. We, we will be doing our uh, six-month evaluation next month. Um, it, it is, I think it's going very well. The, the community has responded to it quite well because the hours are longer now. People can get off of work and actually go do whatever they have to do at City Hall. Uh, they have accepted the fact that it's closed on Mondays. Now, no, we're not... Not everybody, like City Works and stuff like that, are still, or garbage gets picked up every day, et cetera, that kind of stuff. But uh, it, it's working out well, and it's, uh, you know, we, we did it to attract, uh, we want to be the community of choice. So it's, it's it, I think it's having its effect, yes. 
Okay, good to know. Well, listen, we'll check back in with you on the other items as well. But Mayor Getz, thanks for your time. No problem. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. That's Mike Getz, the mayor of Merritt. Now, initially what we were talking about was the fact that a number of communities are passing these bylaws to regulate where you can, can't consume drugs, like publicly. And Merritt is saying, you know what, we're going to wait and see. We don't know if we need this yet. We're going to see what these other communities are doing. We're going to see what kind of impact it has there. Do we need this? And then we'll see what happens on that. But I think really the message there for everyone is, yeah, even in merit, these are considerations. This is a consideration in every town in our province because of this overdose crisis. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time now to introduce you to our next extraordinary British Columbian. We've been doing this over two weeks and we just started on Monday. So here's who we're introducing you to today. You've probably at some point heard of Covenant House, Vancouver. It's the place where street youth can go to get help. Until Covenant House came along, places for young people and kids to go were few and far between, if they existed at all. How did it happen? Well, that was hard, steady, quiet work, not splashy and loud, but boy, has it ever been effective. And the person behind it all has actually recently retired. But you know what? There would be no Covenant House, Vancouver, without Krista Thompson, who joins us now. Krista, thank you for being here. Well, thanks very much, Simi. Um, I really appreciate uh, the introduction, and I certainly was not alone in um, our work at Covenant House, but uh, I was very fortunate to be able to be the leader there. Well, you have done an amazing job <laughs> with that. First off, let's start. Let's talk about that. When? How did a Covenant House evolve? Well, Covenant House Vancouver is part of an international aid agency, actually, uh, that got started back in New York City uh, uh, over 50 years ago uh, in Greenwich Village. And a bunch of, you know, very passionate volunteers could see that there were young people living outside and uh, they wanted to help. So they started a network of organizations across the United States and Canada that offer, you know, 24-hour uh, 365 days of service, uh, housing, um, you know, a safe place to stay, nutritious food, counseling, and uh, just generally helping young people leave the, leave the life on the streets and move toward independent futures. And today, uh, that organization uh, works in Latin America, the United States, and we have two uh, Covenant House sites in Canada, one in Toronto and one in Vancouver. And uh, we opened Vancouver in 1997 um, when it was tiny. Um, I think we I had 12 beds to start. And uh, we've grown into a larger, you know, thriving organization today with uh, uh, over a thousand young people a year coming through our doors and um, an amazing group of people staff and volunteers who work very hard to uh, to help these wonderful young people move forward. But Krista, you've worked so hard to raise the profile and help all those young people move forward. How did it become your passion? Like, what? how did you get involved in this? Well, you know, I think um, all of us find our particular interests in life at different points in life. But, you know, I grew up in Vancouver I had a pretty normal life um, up until my dad died and my sisters and I uh, were little. Um, And, you know, I think to develop the kind of interest and passion that I have in working with young people, I really have to talk about that part of my life because I think that's where you develop 
empathy for for others who are in similar situations. So, you know, like many families, um, you know, through no fault of their own, some, something happens in the family life. And often it is, you know, related to um, the loss of a parent uh, or abandonment. And in my case, you know, my mom was, was very young. Um, she didn't have um, a job. She never really worked outside the home. She couldn't really cope with the loss of my father. She didn't know what to do. Um, she became mentally ill um, and subsequently addicted to drugs and alcohol. Um, and subsequently, our, you know, my sisters and my childhood was pretty traumatic. Um, home was not a safe place. And so us kids began experiencing homelessness in our early teens. And that, you know, that's not an uncommon story. So I was very fortunate in that, you know, I was kind of rescued by, you know, family friends who kept an eye out for me and my sisters and um, they provided some help and encouragement along the way. So, um, you know, mine turned out to be a a happy story eventually, but, um, you know, if it weren't for the help of, you know, that circle of family friends, I'm not sure, you know, where I would be or whether I would have had, you know, had the chance to go on to a successful future. So that is is kind of what propels you. And has it helped you connect with young people when you see them struggling? You know, I I see them like any other kid. You know, I think, of, you know, I can still remember what it was like to to be in that life. And, you know, at the time, and many of your listeners will relate to this, you know, if you have a tough childhood, it, it in childhood you don't know necessarily that it's tough. It's just what is. You know, it becomes kind of your normal, your your normal existence, and you know, you develop resiliency and independence because we as humans are, you know, are strong survivors. And so, um, you know, when I look at kids at Covenant House or I chat with young people on the street, you know, I don't really see them really that much differently than myself or my own children or my friend's children uh, or their teenagers. And I, you know, realize that, you know, just like any other kid or or young person, they're, you know, yes, have had some very challenging experience in in some cases, you know, beyond our imagination kind of experiences. And yet um, they're looking for, you know, uh, uh, they're looking for, some um, help, you know, just a sort of hand, some guidance to maybe even just some encouragement to let them know that they're okay, that they're, they're a good kid. And by the way, here's some tools, here's some services, uh, easily access services that can help them get to, you know, a safe home, can help them start their education, can help them uh, start to heal if that's what they need, uh, and and sort of get them on their feet and and uh, provide that kind of pathway to the kind of future that you know they would mm-hmm. be dreaming of. So how how did you measure success then, Krista? And when you were running Covenant House or dealing with these kids, was it was it being able to have them make some progress and and live a different life? How did you measure success? Well. You know, we have a very, you know, it. well, working with young people on the surface is a very kind of simple exercise in caring and providing services. It's actually a pretty sophisticated kind of 
circle of of support and care that's that's required and that's offered at Covenant House. So you know, there's so many different opportunities and ways that young people can move forward, and we measure all of those kinds of things. So, for example, we uh, assess a young person when they first come to us. We, you know, we we quietly and and over a period of weeks, you know, assess their you know wellness. We make sure that they get to see a doctor, that if they're, you know, obviously in need of some mental health support, that that's provided. We make sure that they start to, um, you know, consume good food and that they get good sleep. And we all know that, you know, nutritious food and sleep makes a huge difference. And lots of kids, you know, who who first arrive um, have not had good food or sleep for sometimes months if not years so you know there's that there's that those early days often where where you know success is measured by their just their wellness their physical wellness and uh, again we do assess these things we have clinical um, social workers and others who are doing that in a very sort of low-key you know we're not putting these kids under a microscope and you know examining them where we're we're living with them, we're working with them, we're exercising with them, we're walking with them, we're doing art therapy with them, and we are starting to learn about who they are. And then as time goes on, of course, when they start to make their goals, um, we can start to measure and help them help them measure their progress, um, you know, by, by, by just paying very close attention to how they're doing and what they're doing. Krista, I I wanted people to try to get to know you because I know about the amazing work that you have done and you have provided us a great picture of that. And listen, thank you. Thank you for all the work that you've done. And you know what? Enjoy your retirement. Well deserved. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Um, when days are sunny and warm like this, um, it looks very enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you for joining us today, Krista. And thank you for being one of our extraordinary British Columbians. Krista Thompson, former head, now retired of Covenant House. But I think you got an idea there of what makes her so extraordinary.